0: Well, I'm glad that we get to continue on in our series through the book of Galatians. And Pastor Scott opened up this series last week, uh, talking about Galatians chapter 1. This week, we're going to talk about Galatians chapter 2. And then we're going to talk about chapter 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, the subsequent weeks. So prepare yourself. It's good stuff. If you've been reading uh, our through our uh, Bible reading plan, our prayer Bible journal plan, we're going to read through the entire book of Galatians, which is only six chapters, so you'll have to read like a half a chapter a, a week for, it's pretty easy, all right? So do that. There's some other supporting verses in there, but it's really good. So uh, let me, those of you who maybe missed uh, last week, uh, let me catch you up a little bit, so The book of Galatians is one of the epistles, one of the letters that Paul wrote to one of the churches. And so after Jesus had died, rose again, and he ascended into heaven, and he commissioned his people to go and build the church, they went and did that. And the church, like, just exploded. And so there was churches popping up all over the place. And within the context of those churches, here are all these people that are, you know... Intermingling with other cultures and, and different backgrounds, and the, uh, different issues or problems arise in these various churches. So, in the letters that Paul wrote to the church, whether it be to the Corinthians or the Ephesians or Galatians, those were various issues that that specific church was dealing with, or the people in that time were dealing with, maybe some issues that happened, or maybe he tried to encourage those people because he heard maybe something, they were discouraged about something, or he would teach them on something. And so the letter to the Galatians, one of the issues that was uh, at the onset of the, the early Christian church was the issue that here were these Jews who were faithful followers of the law. They loved the law. They loved the prophets, and they followed that rigorously. And then there was this other group of people that are called the Gentiles. They were people who didn't follow the law. They were like the sinners of the time. And as these two people came together, and as the early church, what they were taught was that Jesus died and rose again. He was the coming Messiah that everyone was waiting on. And when he died for you, it paid for all your sins once and for all. And so as the church developed and there was more people in the church and there was these Jews and the Gentiles, some of the Jews thought, well, it can't just be Jesus dies and rose again and we believe in him and that's it. Like you have to follow the law too. So as Paul, what he's arguing in this letter here is the centrality and the purity of the gospel, that we are all fallen and we're all sinful by nature yet God has made a way to rescue and ransom us from the bondage uh, uh, in the chains of that sin and so some people kind of push back on that teaching and they push back uh, with this idea that Christ if he's the fulfillment of this he can't uh, he's the fulfillment of the law there's no way he can be our only justifier it's not just him that we're that a justification takes place and that's kind of a big church word right that what do you mean by justification? Like that's kind of weird. Here, justification is actually a pretty simple process, a uh, pretty simple thing. Okay, justification is just an act by God. It's an act of God, and it's a legal declaration in which God pardons uh, sinners of all their sins. God declares the sinner righteous at the very moment, instantaneously, when the sinner puts trust in Jesus. That's justification, that what makes you just in God's eyes, what makes you righteous in the eyes of God, it is through Christ's work on the cross, dying and paying for your sins, and when we put our faith in him, we are justified before God, and we are made righteous and clean before him. That's justification. It's just Jesus, or it's just God, uh, through his son Jesus, declaring you righteous based upon your faith and your faith alone. And so these people were going, well, if Christ is the fulfillment of the law, there's no way he's our only justifier. There must be other things that also make us righteous in the eyes of God. And so there were kind of two arguments that were being made against Paul in the early church about this. And they're good arguments. I mean, they're arguments that probably you or uh, I've thought of myself. One argument is, well, if Christ is our only justifier... There's no way that justification by Christ alone would happen because that would undo the entire law. Does that mean we just literally rip the Old Testament out of our Bible and throw it out? Like, well, there goes the law, right? Like, does that mean what about the Ten Commandments? I thought Moses, like, brought the tablets and these were, like, good things. What about all the Levitical laws and all the things? Like, does that just mean that's worthless? Does it just undo all the things that God told us to do? I've thought about that before. Here's the second thing that was brought up to Paul, which was, okay, if you preach Christ alone justifies, then all people will do is they'll just turn themselves over to sin. And they'll just believe that I'll just keep sinning because God's grace covers everything. So why I'll just keep sinning and just trust that God's grace covers it all? Have You ever thought that before? Like Christians just believe you can just sin and do whatever you want because God's grace covers everything. You ever thought that? That was one of their early church arguments of, like, just hashtag grace abounds, you know? Like, do what you want. Like, God's got it covered. Those were the arguments that were being brought up that was like, if Jesus is our only justifier, what about these things? What about the law? What about uh, grace in, in, in relation to our sin? Does that mean you can just do whatever you want, whenever you want, with whoever you want, however you want? And so Paul addresses those things... Uh, Throughout the epistles, but uh, specifically in the book of Galatians. And so Paul begins to unravel his argument against these very ideas that came up in the church. And he tries to encourage the church to seek God and and to seek Christ and his work and not our works. But he also rebukes people uh, throughout uh, Galatians. And one of the people he rebukes is Peter who Peter, he kind of goes back on his word a little bit, and he has to rebuke Peter. And so we're not going to get into all of that, but as dealing with how you're eating food and blah, blah, blah. Who cares? All right, but we're going to deal with uh, Galatians—well, I guess a lot of people care. Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. So if you brought your Bible, that's where we're going to kind of base this out of this morning. But as Paul begins to unravel this, one thing that he makes very clear throughout this— is that the law is a diagnostic tool, not a cure. The law is a di- is a, a diagnostic tool, not a cure. A uh, few years back, I tore my ACL playing hoopfest, and uh, went to the doctor. And when when you tear a muscle or if you have other issues, they stick you in an MRI tube. Anyone ever taken an MRI before? Terrible, aren't they? It's just like, beep, 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 beep. It's like the worst tone of dial-up internet you've ever had for a 45-minute period of time, right? And so they stuck me in the tube, in the MRI, and when I was all done, it told me my knee was broken. Now, they could stick me in that MRI tube over and over and over and over again, and it would tell me my knee was broken, but it had no power to mend what was broken in my body. It had no power to fix what was broken and tore in my knee. And the same thing here Paul illustrates throughout the book of Galatians, but specifically in chapter 2 what we're going to read, is that the law, it's a diagnosis of what's broken in humanity and within your life but it holds no power to cure and to mend what is broken in your life. You can constantly go through your life and put it through the lens of the law, and it will diagnose the space and the sin that's in your life, but it cannot cure you or mend you from what's actually broken. And this is what Paul puts forward. And he also puts forward this notion against the whole... uh, Uh, just keep on sinning because grace abounds, Uh, he puts forward this notion uh, that I'll explain it this way, that a heart that it's truly been reborn, a heart that's truly put their faith in Jesus, cannot say, I'll just do whatever I want. Rather, it responds with, I'll do whatever you will. Saying, I'll do whatever I want because God will just forgive me is actually evidence that you're not a Christian. Being a follower of Christ means you follow Christ, right? So you can't say, I'm a follower of Christ, and then not follow Christ. That means you're not a follower of Christ. You tracking with me? It's actually one of the evidences of if your heart is truly reborn. So we're going to look at verse 15, and we're going to kind of see... Him unravels some of these ideas, and on through Galatians, we'll, we'll see more of that as well. But at the top of verse 15, he starts the beginning of this argument with justification by Christ alone. And this is what he says. He says, we who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles. This is how I kind of read It's like Paul being like, we who are Jews and not sinful Gentiles. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of how I read it. I don't know if that's how you're actually supposed to read it, but that's what goes in my mind. We who are Jews, not them sinful Gentiles, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Now, here's what he's saying. He's saying, Paul was like the Jew of the Jews, okay? He was the Pharisee of Pharisees. Uh, Paul writes about his zeal for the Lord, that that he was the Pharisee amongst all of them. If anyone kept the letter of the law, it was Paul. Paul was like the man. He followed every, uh, dotted every I, crossed every T following the law. And so he knows when he talks about us Jews who were born Jews and we weren't like them sinful Gentiles. What he's portraying here is that many Jews at the time felt like they had some type of moral advantage to being justified by God. That there was some type of moral advantage that Jews had. Because they had the law. Because they kept and followed the covenants. Because they had the prophets of the time. That they felt like because they did all these things, they had some type of moral advantage of being justified, being made right. In God's eyes. And moral, and what Paul points out here is that moral advantages, there's no such thing in God's eyes. No matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, even if you followed every little law or if you were someone who followed zero of the laws, there's no such thing as a moral advantage. Just because Jews at the time had everything the law, the prophets, the covenants, all those things it did not give them any type of moral advantage or more justification in God's eyes as they thought maybe it had. And what they were bringing up is, what about the Old Testament? What about the Ten Commandments? Doesn't this make us right as well? Paul says that that uh, uh, essentially that He points out these differences that some people, yeah, rebel against God in ways of like the prodigal son, people who run from God and they they get themselves in really uh, uh, poor situations and they sin in ways, drugs or alcohol or promiscuity or these other things that that are labeled sinful or like Gentiles would do, uh, maybe in our time. But then he also points out here essentially that Well, yeah, there's those people, but also another way people rebel against God is empty religion in their churches. It's a way you actually rebel, that the people who sit there with um, the list of the do's and the don'ts and what you do in religion is a way that we actually rebel against God, because we think for some reason that those things might make us right in God's eyes. Or even if there's other things in our life that are bad, as long as we're doing these things and we're crossing these off, somehow we're made right in God's eyes or we have some advantage that God looks at us differently because of those things. Now, and what we're not talking about here is some, in, in life, there's real advantages and disadvantages that happen in life. If we grow up in America, we're all... Advantaged in some way to other people who are in third world countries. But if you grow up in a certain home and you have certain parents and maybe a certain uh, income level, or maybe your parents are able to do certain things and they love you and they put you in certain programs and all this stuff, you do have just different life advantages from other people. If you grew up in a home that didn't have all those things, Yes, you're disadvantaged in life to other people, but what Paul's talking about here is not those type of advantages. He's talking just about what makes you right and moral and good in front of God, and what he says is there is no such thing as any moral advantage. It doesn't matter what part of the country you come from. It doesn't matter what country you come from. It doesn't matter how good you are, how bad you are, how much you've sinned, how least you've sinned, how many times you've read the Bible, or how many this or how many of that. There is no such thing. Everyone is equal. That the person who runs from God like the prodigal son and gets involved in all these bad things, and the person who just sits with empty religion in their life, both equally need to be justified in God's eyes. And that's what Paul says here. Paul says, moral external righteousness is no advantage at all. Meaning just because you go to church a lot, just because you you, uh, follow the laws, those external moral advantages you might think you have, you actually don't. That you need to be justified by God equally as much. But this is counter to what many Americans believe because we feel like we can work for things ourselves, we can provide things ourselves, and like we can uh, make money and we can set the life up that we want. And a lot of times we feel like we don't really need God that much. That like I can provide my own well being, I can provide financial stability. I can provide this. I can go seek good medical attention if I need it. And many times, because of our culture that we have in America and coming from first world problems, is that sometimes we feel like maybe we do have a moral advantage or we do have some type of, like, advantage in God's eyes because we give, we might serve, or we might do this or that. We're good people, or look what we've built, look what the life I've established, or whatever it may be. And Paul says, "Mm mm-mm, It doesn't matter. It doesn't cut. What matters is what Christ did for you in your faith, in your faith alone. Whether you have zero dollars or a million dollars, it is your faith in him. And that's what it means. And uh, uh, our righteous deeds, even the, the best of what we try and do, the Bible tells us our righteous deeds are like filthy rags in his eyes. That even the best you can bring forward means... Not, you know, in, in light of God's immense holiness and righteousness, it means nothing. It's like a filthy rag for him. That we need our faith and our love and trust in Jesus far more than any uh, law or rule or try, we try and keep people accountable for all the little things that the church might go through. As we read on, Galatians two seventeen. Paul says, but if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. Here's what Paul's trying to communicate here. He's he's comparing the work of Jesus with the work uh, of Moses or the Old Testament law, that Imagine for yourself that you were one of the Israelites who was with Moses before Jesus ever hit the scene, right? Up until the point that Moses brought the Ten Commandments, there were no laws. Isn't that an interesting thought? There were no laws, and God still loved his people. God still had a heart for his people. And Abraham, which we'll see in chapter 3 of Galatians, Abraham, before any laws were ever written or in stone or were communicated, Abraham was justified by faith, or justified by his faith. And so imagine you're the Israelites, and you're standing at the base of Mount, Mount Sinai. And here Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. Imagine the gasps and some of the gulps that took place when he read that. Thou shalt not uh, take your Lord's name in vain, or thou shalt not serve any other gods, as they had a golden calf behind them that they had made as Moses went up the mountain. Imagine some of the, the feelings that sunk in, that in that very moment, here were these people who finally realized the space between them and God. Here, the people for the, uh, for the first time understood the reality And they were aware of their sin before God and that they were far from him and what he wanted from them. And if we come to Christ, what Paul's saying here is if we come to Christ and we put our faith in him and we say, I believe in you, and in turn, Christ gives us more rules and he says, okay, well, you've put your faith in me. Here's a few more rules for you to do. Well, then that just means that he's building up what he already tore down. That's what Paul's saying, is that what Moses, what God established through Moses was there, and those laws were good, but then Christ came to fulfill those things. It doesn't mean that those things ever go away, but as Christ fulfills those, and if we come to Jesus, and if we say, I believe in you and put my trust in you, then all of a sudden Jesus is building that wall, that back up what Jesus came to tear down. But instead, he doesn't do that. Instead, when we come to him, he says, you are 100% forgiven. When we come to him, he doesn't give us another list of things to do. He calls us his brother or his sister, and he says, you are forgiven. Is that not amazing? It's amazing. It really is. But we tend to kind of stray from that, don't we? You know, the the song, uh, the the verse that says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. It's not a weird verse to sing in church, like prone to leave the God I love? It's kind of a weird verse, but there's a lot of truth in that. That although this is what uh, I can communicate to you, you've probably heard other people communicate to you that God loves you. That you don't gotta clean yourself up to present yourself to him. But what, what is our propensity as humans is to wander and drift away and prone to leave the God who loves us, who paid for those things for us. I read one pastor says, says this way, the way you can truly see if someone understands and embraces the gospel is to view their life. But you don't view their life when times are good or when things are going really well. The way that you see if someone truly understands the gospel is you watch their actions when they stumble you watch their actions when they stumble. If you run from God or you run to God. When you stumble, if you run to God, it's someone who truly embraces and understands the gospel, justification that you were already made right in God's eyes. Those who stumble and then they feel like they have to leave church for couple weeks, couple months, couple years, and then come back after they got things figured out or they did some things with some relationships or whatever happened, they felt like they had to come together back to, back to church with their life a little bit together or something, that's actually not understanding the gospel. Because that's actually anti-gospel, because what Christ did, he came for all that to be paid for once and for all, that you don't have to come to God, and you don't have to come with anything together for him, that he justifies you exactly how you are, and who you are, and where you are. That you can come to him, and he embraces you. He died for you, and justifies you, and makes you righteous in God's eyes, not based off of anything that you would do. John three sixteen is like one of the most famous Bible verses, right? Even non Christians probably can uh, recite part of John three sixteen. But John three seventeen it loses some of the glory because of the awesomeness of John three sixteen. But John three seventeen is awesome. That, you know, those of you who know John 3.16, that, you know, it says, For God so loved the world that he, he gave his one and only Son, and whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. And then John 3.17, Jesus says these words. He says, For I have come into the world not to condemn the world, but to save it from condemnation. Now, that is a, an amazing, powerful statement there. Then he says, those of you who believe in me will have every eternal life because I have come not to condemn you, not to put weight on you, the weight that you feel from having to follow the law or to do things to make yourself right, but I've come to actually save you from that. Is that not good? I've come to save you from the weight that you feel like that, that condemnation feels that you have to measure up or you have to, the sin that weighs you down or the life that weighs you down. I've actually come to save you from that, not to bring more onto you. That's the message of the gospel. And Paul continues to write in verse 19, he says, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Now that's kind of an interesting verse. And at first glance, you're like, I have no idea what that means. And at first glance, when I read that, I went, I have no idea what that means, okay? (laughs) That for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. Here's what Paul's trying to write here. He says, essentially, there's a greater law than the law. We'll put it that way, and then we'll try and make it make sense, okay? But you're like, how does that work? There's a greater law than the law. It's kind of this basic principle, okay? Think of it this way. Those of you who are parents and you have kids or those of you who had parents at one point in your life you probably understand this as well. That most parents send their kids out, outside and it's like go have fun, right? Go be a kid. Or some, some families like they they love having fun together as a family. It's like what they do. It's almost like a rule in the home like we have fun. We never want to be the rigid weird stickler family, right? And so but when you parents as you send your kids out to outside you say go have fun, but be Careful, be safe, right? It's like this rule of like go have fun, but don't. You know? It's kind of that like, there's these two rules that stand in, in stark contrast of one another. That's go have fun, but be safe. And so what's supposed to happen is a child when they're like jumping on the trampoline inside the net, it's like, have fun, jump on the trampoline. And then they're you know, having fun, and then when they stand at the edge of the trampoline, it's like, I think I might want to do a backflip off the trampoline. There's a part of your brain that's supposed to go, what trumps having fun is being safe. And so I'm not going to do that. Now that part of my brain didn't develop until I was about 25. <laughs> and I have broken bones and broken knees and all kinds of things to prove it, okay? At one point, with a good friend of mine, we decided it would be really fun when we were in college. Uh, We were bored one night. We're going to go climb on top of it, like 2 a.m., a local elementary school. And So we climbed on top of it. I know I'm like a sinful Gentile, Okay, Don't judge me. (laughs) We climbed on top of it, and we thought it'd be great to jump from like one building to the other. And so as I stood on top of the gymnasium, going to jump down to the main building, super hardcore parkour, you know? I stood at the edge, and it's supposed to be that part of your brain that says, have fun, be safe. You're supposed to that part of the brain of be safe is supposed to kick in. It didn't kick in. And so as I stood there, as I jumped, I slipped. And I fell all the way to the ground and landed on my face. And went to the hospital, had a broken elbow, this, that, you know, my face was messed up. But there's this rule, right, that's have fun. But what trumps fun is safety. And here's what Paul's trying to communicate, that he says, as I died uh, 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 to the law, for the law, that I might live for God, that he says uh, that the love of Jesus, the love of God in Christ, it trumps the law. It's the thing that is the greater of the two. That while the law is good and while the law was established, what overrides that is the love of God for you. That it trumps that. It's something greater than that, that Christ's fulfillment of the law. He doesn't do away with it, but but with it, it, it's meant for our good, for our relationship with other people and with God. But what always trumps that is the work of Christ and who he is in the gospel of hope found in the work of Jesus Christ. That trumps that, that all the law down here, it's good, it's awesome. We never should discount it. We shouldn't get rid of it. But if we think for some reason that is equal to or above the love of God, you are mistaken like the Galatians. And Paul says that through that, through the love of God, that I might live for him. I might live for him. And maybe you've heard people say that, like, I want to live for God. Ever heard anyone say, I want to live for God? I want, to, I want to live for Jesus. What does that actually mean when you think about it? Like, what does it mean to live for God? That we died to the law, for the law, through the law, you know, or whatever, right? That we might live for God. What does that mean? And, and I bet if you were to ask yourself or you to ask a friend, what they would probably tell you is, well, it means you, you, you tithe and it means that you, you pray, You read your Bible and you follow what Jesus says you to do, tells you to do, and you serve other people. But is that what Paul's saying here? No, he's saying the opposite, isn't he? He's saying it's not following the law. What Paul communicates here is that a life well lived, a life that someone says that I'm going to live for God, looks like Um, them putting their 100% full faith and belief that Christ has justified them fully. That a life well lived, a life followed, God says, Jesus made a way and Jesus loves me and drew me to the Father and I have been justified fully. And now through that, I live my life through being justified by God and have full faith and assurance on who I am and how what God has done for me, that through that I find joy in serving, through that I find joy in following him, through that I find joy in these other aspects of my life. That Christ's fulfillment means that we can live a life for God by fully putting our trust in faith that he's justified you fully. Verse 20 is kind of like the coffee cup verse. It's what you like have on your coffee mug, you drink out of it, but you never really think about it that much or the implications behind it. This is what it says. Let's read this together and we're gonna end on verse 20 and 21. He says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. That if you could make yourself righteous in any way, then the death of Christ means nothing. He would have died for no reason. So here's how justification works, is that I am dead with Christ when he died, and the life I now live in faith is by... Who died in my place? Who was Jesus? Yesterday, I was driving out to a graduation party, and I drove by Mount Spokane High School, and that's where I I graduated from. And you know, as I drove by Mount Spokane, a lot of like memories and thoughts and feelings came back. And my son was in the backseat, and I was like, oh, that's where dad went to school. And I hadn't driven by it in a long time. And as I was driving, just thoughts came back of the person who I was when I was there. And the choices I made and the decisions that I made and the really hard time I put on a few specific teachers that probably don't have much good to think of me now. And, but more importantly, all my fellow peers, like, would they observed who I was then. And these thoughts came in my mind of like, what would they think of you now? They really think you'd be a pastor what would you tell your son to live? How would, how, why would he believe that he should live any differently? You lived a certain way. And maybe you found yourself in that similar situation of maybe you drove past, you know, a certain house. Maybe you were in a certain house, or maybe you were, drove past a certain field, or maybe a certain college campus, or a certain place of employment. And the thoughts that came back there were, man, I messed up. I had I didn't do some things right there. And those feelings that come in that say like, why would your kid ever think that they should do anything different? What are you gonna say to them? You lived a certain way. You did certain things. Why should they trust you? Why should anyone think that you would really follow God? And those feelings came into my mind. And maybe you found yourself there. But here's the amazing thing about verse 20 and 21. That as you think about those things, it's that when you've put your faith in Jesus, you've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That means that the person who was in that high school, that, uh, when I was there, that Nate, he is dead. He is gone. He is a different person now. That person, that before you put your faith in Jesus at that certain uh, workplace, they are dead. They're gone. That person on that college campus, after you've put your faith in Jesus, they are dead. They are no longer. Because of your faith in Jesus, you are a new person. You are now not who you once were, but you are who God has made you to be through Jesus Christ living in you. That person is dead. They died on the cross with Jesus. And the life I now live is by faith and the Son of God who loves me and came for me, nothing I'm going to do is ever going to nullify the grace of God and who I am. And any time that we try and project a reality inconsistent with who you are and where you are, it's just you trying to nullify the grace of God. That means that if you've come into this place weary and exhausted, and you're pretending not to be, You're nullifying the grace of God because one of the graces God has given our earth is the church and the body, the body of believers who might try and encourage you and love you if you only had the courage to be honest with where you're at and trust in the mercy of Christ. If you ever feel like the need to impress other people You feel like you have to impress others with your actions or your life or impress others on social media or how you live or what you do. That's you nullifying the grace of God because is his justifying work in your soul not sufficient enough for you? Charles Wesley wrote a hymn, and I'm gonna end on, on this here. He said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You too can experience that. That very thing of where your spirit lay in sin and night seems so long. But through his love, that prison, the dungeon, can be filled with light this ridiculous, extravagant, unconditional love of Jesus can be yours. The chains of sin, the chains of the law that both weigh you down, those of you who know you're living not right in the eyes of God, and those of you who are just fulfilling empty religion, both need to be justified by God. And those chains that hold you down, you can experience freedom in Christ. It's time to wake up. Fill that prison with light. The chains can fall off and your heart can be made free and you can go forth and follow the one who loves you and died for you and created you without condemnation of the law hanging over your head that you've been justified by faith in him. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and thank you for your work. God, thank you that you justify us and make us right in your eyes by our faith in you and that and that alone. God, I just pray for the very people in here who just need a resurgence of your love, who've maybe drifted away, prone to wander, prone to leave the God. Would they come back to you and experience love and mercy and grace? And those who've just been held bondage under the law, feeling like they must do something to measure up. God, would you free them from that? That we might find love and joy serving and fulfilling who you want us to be because of who you have already made us righteous in God's eyes. Thank you for that, Lord, and we pray this in your name. Amen.
1: Awesome. Thanks, Nate. Have a couple things for you guys before we head out into the sun. Uh, a couple weeks ago, Mike talked to us about this wonderful fundraiser we're helping out with uh, a nonprofit here in Spokane called Life Services. Uh, they come alongside women here in Spokane with unexpected pregnancies and help them with this emotional, spiritual, and practical care. And so we are collecting change in these uh, baby bottles right here. So if you grabbed one of those a couple weeks ago, uh, next week is the time you turn it in. Uh, if you like to participate in that, you can grab them right out there in the lobby um, and start filling them up with change. Uh, also, right out here in the parking lot in the greenhouse, we have some middle school and high school students that are doing a barbecue to help raise money for camp. Um, so if you just love probably the best burger you're ever going to have in your life, made by a middle schooler, which will happen it's going to shock you okay uh feel free to head out there and help them uh get to camp uh if you need some prayer uh, i'd love to invite you over here our prayer team would love to meet with you and agree with you in prayer if you're new here at our church and would just love to get more connected i'd love to meet with you underneath this monitor over here at first connect and talk with you about how we can get you more connected here